1: this is Chuck Olmstead. I'm with Ward Tannenberg. He's associated with the Widows Project. Actually, uh, Ward, you've been at Westminster Chapel for a while now, correct?
2: Uh, yes, my wife and I came back to the Northwest from California in
1: 1999.
2: 99. And uh, yeah, I was on staff as the executive pastor at Westminster for seven years, and then and my wife was minister to women during that time. And then I retired again, and uh, the next year I was asked if I would the director of, a, of an organization that was that I'd been working with, a Christian association serving adult ministries. We worked with with uh, lay leaders and pastors who, whose primary focus was those in the second half of life.
1: Before I sat to interview with you, I was thinking about, there's such a strong emphasis on youth ministry, which is so important, and the mindset is, is that our kids are going through so many struggles. And while that's very true, just because we've had life experiences, the second half of life can be just as much of a struggle, can it? Yes.
2: Having been involved in youth ministry during seasons in my life, I'm really into that mentally. Now not so much literally. But I love the kids and the young people and believe that we should be focused on them. But uh, ageism in society, and it flows over into the church, it's a very real issue, because we tend to see the gray hair or the blue hair as someone who's no longer engaged significantly, and so which is is really totally incorrect. But the church's emphasis or reaching out I think I think that churches that have a lot of older people almost apologize sometimes. You know, we got so many older people here this morning. When in fact, if we realize what a treasure potentially there is to mine among the older people, it would be a great thing. Uh, kids don't often don't have. Well, some of them don't have. Um, come from homes that are single parent or they don't have their grandparents living in the area and if connection can be made the story really is that if young people leave the church after they go away to college, that if they have someone to come back to, not the church so much as an individual who has taken an interest in them, who's been like a mentor or a a kind of a surrogate grandparent, they come back to that person and If if the older adult is guided and encouraged to stay connected to the kids as they go away to school, that relationship can be a really profound experience for both.
1: During your ministry time, I'm sure you learned a lot uh, as seeing people go through the transitions of life, uh, seniors that were going through transitions, and some of them becoming widows and widowers as they were uh, transitioning and then uh, that, that same experience happened to you, and I'd like for us to just talk about that for a little bit. Uh, tell me about your wife.
2: My wife, her name was Dixie, mm-hmm. Dixie Lee Barbie. She was from the south Oklahoma, which is kind of south, and um, came from a home that was very difficult, an absent, absent father, an angry mother, uh, two older brothers who just got out of the house as quick as they could, and and so she grew up in that environment. I met her uh, in Tulsa, and as over a period of months we developed a relationship, and after we'd known one another about about a year and a half, we were married. We were married young. I was uh, 19 and she was 20. So we were married for 59 years. We were partners in life, and as parents and and grandparents, and of course in ministry because she uh, was also on the pastoral ministry team, usually in a focus on women. The um, although she we we worked together a lot with married. Uh, couples, and we did some uh, work with uh, a seminary that had a course were particularly focused on marriage and the ministry. So we did uh, a lot of that during our years. We had um, we have two children, three grandchildren, uh, four step grandchildren, and uh, two great grandchildren. Mm. So we were married 59 years when, well, uh, she the last 18 months of her life, she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and uh, she fought that and, uh, and gained a little extra time, uh, primarily wanting to see the new grandson that was still unborn, mm. so she got to be there for the birth, and and that was important to her. She um, she was a very interesting lady. She was a we used to call her a teaching moment because it seemed as though everything in her life uh, resulted in uh, what did we learn from that? It was kind of her favorite question. So, um, in the end of her journey, we talked for a while about because I'm a writer we talked for a while about are we are going to write her story and she finally said well if you're going to fill the the story with teaching moments then you have my permission hmm. otherwise she said it's just another story so I wrote the book Sacred Journey and it's her it's her story our story memoir and um, uh I framed it in the last 18 months of her journey, which had a lot of the uh, medical side involved. But it is her life story. And it's been well received by pastors and chaplains and individuals who are going through the same kind of circumstance because her life is a teaching moment. Well,
1: tell me about a few of those moments uh, of her life that that you developed in in the book. Uh, share a couple of of those moments that uh, that her life taught to you and to others.
2: Well, I think one of the things that we learned actually um, that became a teaching moment for both of us was from a friend of ours who became uh, a kind of a long-distance mentor to me. His name is Jim Houston. Dr. Houston was uh, one of the founding principals at um, Regent College in Vancouver, B.C. And I was asking him to come and speak at a conference in Dallas that we were having for ministers to older adults. And and, uh, so I said... Dixie and I are going to come up and take you out to lunch and get better acquainted, so we drove up to Vancouver, and when I arrived, discovered that instead of going out to lunch, he had prepared lunch, and uh, his wife was uh, had full-blown Alzheimer's, so as we're sitting around the table, uh, see he asked me to pass the blessing on the food, and I, I started, but before I got going, she had heard him say, pray for the food, and so she started in, and she prayed a lovely prayer. And at the end, Jim looked at, uh, at me, and he said, these are the golden years. And I thought to myself, well, you know, some, he's, it's kind of an offhanded comment, and he said, no, no, really, he said, these are the golden years. These are the years that I get to love my wife Without ever having any thought of gaining anything in return, mm. well, Texie and I talked about that on the way home. It was just such a profound moment and um, it was only a few months later that uh, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and I got to realize just how important what he had said had become for me it was that was a teaching moment, sure um uh, involved herself with women uh, mentoring. She was a consummate mentor. Even when she was uh, in her last weeks uh, and months of her life, women would come to our home and she would lay on the couch and, and they would sit on the floor because they wanted to hear her. They wanted to ask questions of her. About life and about marriage, and um, she she loved younger women. She loved working with them. So the teaching moments, you know, she had. Um, uh, as I said, she grew up in this very dysfunctional environment, and um, I we can't honestly say that her mother was was any kind of a good example. It was just a very hard relationship. But when we married, my wife became acquainted with my mother. And my mother um, taught her so many things that her mother had never done. And they developed this incredible uh, mother-daughter-in-law relationship. My sister used to say, "Well, in a joking fashion, well, Mom loves Dixie more than she loves us,"
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and uh, they just had this this wonderful relationship, and it went it went both ways. Mm-hmm. My mother taught her out of her own maturity and the things she learned along the way, but Dixie um, taught my mother as well. Uh, my mother came from a very this, uh faith-based, religious, uh, conservative kind of uh, situation. So a lot of legalisms. And uh, Dixie, that was not her style. And so between the two of them, they, they kind of reshaped one another's lives. And it was a beautiful thing to watch, actually.
1: Tell, uh, Ward, as, as we're... Um... Uh, talking about this process then, as she was in her uh, decline as far as her health is concerned, obviously since you were writing a book at about that same time, there must have been an awareness that there was going to be a final chapter. And, and, And as you were processing that with her, what was the kind of conversation that you would have as far as as the final chapter in her book?
2: Well, I think initially, I mean, we both knew that with the particular illness that she had, uh, we weren't going to get out of this alive. So the most we could hope for medically was maybe four or five years, providing she was able to respond positively to the chemo, and radiation treatments. So we decided, and she decided, and I concurred with her, that that was what she wanted to do. And so during the weeks and months that we went through this process, uh, she gradually became aware of that finality was closer than, than either of us had hoped for. We were hoping for the four or five years, but we were not getting even the two years. And initially they had told us that if she didn't do anything, she maybe had five or six months. So, um, during the times that we were together talking, we talked about, um, a lot of end of life issues. We read, uh, Randy Alcorn, reread, I should say, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, um, I would read that out loud to her, and uh, we'd have our coffee in the morning. Uh, and that was, a, that was a good kind of conversation because her, her mind and her heart was turning toward that um, reality, that life here in this world was going to soon be over, and, uh, and she was going to be with the Lord. So Randy's book was very helpful, and and um, so we did that. We we actually had no, we made no preparations as far as where we were going to uh, where we were going to be placed after our death. And so I began to look around and finally found where I thought would be a good spot. And she and I visited that together and picked out. A place, and uh, did the uh, did all of those things in advance of her demise,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I really think that's um, that's an important part of end of life. It is so important not to leave the um, undone things that we should do. Uh, that that suddenly our children are faced with. What are we going to do with dad? What are we going to do with mom? And um, so the end-of-life issues were important. Uh, I will say that after she was gone, uh, it was like, it's been like a big hole I torn out of your being, because we had lived together, married for 59 years, and we had not just been married, but we partnered in ministry and in life, and so... Her being gone was a huge, uh, a huge blow. I was working by this time after her, soon after her death, I just kept on working on her memoir, the Sacred Journey book, which is now available on Amazon. As I, I worked on it, it was about a year, maybe 13, 14 months after her death that the book was published. Then I hit the wall. Yeah, um, I suddenly found myself unable to write. And I couldn't think creatively. I just. Recognized that I was in this kind of delayed grief situation, and I know that some people are, are like that. You know, you go for a while, and then things quiet down, and and the time has passed, and suddenly it hits you—the finality. I think that's the finality of um, of her not being able to return. You know, that you come home to an empty apartment, just so many things that you, in your head, you knew this was going to be, but in your heart, you didn't get a hold of it until it actually happened. And people I talked to, they had the same, you know, it's not just something I experienced. It's sort of universal, I think, with widows and widowers. Widowers, I think, have more difficulty sometimes than widows. Because men don't talk about their feelings as easily as women do. And uh, um, often if you go to a a group that deals with uh, after-death kinds of experiences for people, it's mostly women that go and the occasional guy. And guys just don't do it. And so they kind of huddle with their own um, inner conversations going on, and um, buck up. And you know, um, uh, there's no, there's no. What was the saying? There's no crying in baseball. Or <laughs> guys, there's no crying in uh, in widowy being a widower. But I got to tell you, there's a lot of crying and being a widower. And sometimes it happens at a most embarrassing moment. when you just can't keep it together. I had the advantage of, I've a group of men, professional businessmen and, uh, and doctors and whatever to meet in my home every week. Um, it's part of an organization called C3 Leaders. So I'm, I've am i been leading a group for about 11 years. And every once in a while, a new guy shows up and becomes part of the group. So we have maybe 16 to 20 guys in the group. These, these men were like bands, uh, like a band of brothers for me. And uh, um, they lived through it with me. They uh, cared for me. And they learned as they watched. So they, So they gave to me, but they also learned from watching a guy go through the situation. And the other thing I've been told uh, is that the book S- said the journey is, is somewhat different because it's a man writing about the loss of a wife, as opposed to most books on grieving are written by women. Again, it's it's the problem that widowers have, but we just don't talk about our stuff enough. I try to get, when I can, I try to get together with guys. that just need a cup of coffee. We go get a latte somewhere at Starbucks or Woods or wherever. and It's amazing how guys, one-on-one, open up and tell you their story.
1: Uh, Ward, as you uh, are are aware of the Widows project and the goals uh, that are are desired, uh, how what do you see in the value of of the widow's project and and what they're wanting to accomplish with widows and widowers?
2: The desire to provide materials and um, resources, perhaps even counseling and that sort of things for widows and widowers is part of the game plan, viewing the fact that in many churches uh, and other organizations, for people who don't go to church, they don't have that resource available. So, so that's the, it's a kind of a caregiving ministry and an outreach ministry. As
1: we're wrapping up here, Ward, I'd love for you again to share the name of the book. If someone wants to reach out to you, if they have any questions of you, is there uh, some contact information that you can provide?
2: Sure. Uh, Of course, the book, Sacred Journey, is one of my books. You can find them all on Amazon. I write a weekly blog, blog called Perspective, and you can just put my name in Ward Tannenberg uh, in your browser. And uh, or wardtannenberg dot com, which takes you to my website, and and uh, if you subscribe to the to the blog, it comes directly to your email each week. It's free, and it um, it focuses on life after fifty, leading and learning, and leading in life after fifty. So well, for the- me personally, if you just uh, you can just put my name, wardtannenberg dot ward at wardtannenberg dot com, and that's my uh, contact email.
1: Very good, very good. Well, the, uh, the website again is ward, W-A-R-D, Tanberg, dot com. And, Ward, I want to thank you for uh, joining me on this uh, The Widows Project uh, recording, and uh, thank you for sharing your story.